Hey, it's Emily. And it's Kayla. And you're listening to Two Jane Does. This podcast contains some adult language, graphic descriptions of crime scenes, sexual assault, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're going to discuss control please uh rodney alcala aka john Berger, aka the dating game killer and in addition to our normal kind of explicit content warning yes that's the words i was trying to look for um we're also going to throw out there that this particular case, because he's a monster, it involves children, so trigger warning, there will be crimes against minors and underage children in this episode. It's really hard to like kind of just say, okay, we're going to discuss Rodney Alcala because he's like an evil onion and you got to peel away at him. Kind of, but not really, because he's he's always evil from the time he turns 18, which we'll get into. But Rodney's early life was that he was born in August of 1943. And, and, you know, most of these people we'll discuss, they've had some kind of hard childhood. They lived in an abusive home. They had some kind of troubled home life. Well, everything that I've researched for him... He did not. Uh, the only thing that he had was that his father abandoned the family when he was around eight years old, and they were living in Mexico at the time, and he was actually caring for, well, the family was actually caring for their, their sick grandmother, and she passed away, so grandma passes away, dad abandons the family, and then his mother and his other siblings ended up relocating to L.A., and something else that should be noted is there's a lot of names that float around in regards to this case. So what we've chosen to do is kind of stick to the heavy hitters and the names that are most necessary. And that's not to throw shade at any of the investigators, police, prosecution, defense. It's not throwing shade at anybody. We want to focus on the main people in this case, which are Rodney and his victims. So after moving to L.A., um, they enrolled in school, and throughout school, Rodney was said to be a good child with excellent grades and was outgoing and friendly, and he dated regularly. He even participated in sports and music. Again, just going back, like, there's no precursors here that indicate the monster that he's going to turn into. So no. this this person could be on public transportation with you right now, just being polite, letting you have his seat on the bus. It could be anybody. Just a pretty normal kid. I mean, that's what it appeared to be. Yes. But at age 17, <laughs> he joined the Army. Um, unfortunately, he had a nervous breakdown. He went AWOL and then took to hitchhiking from North Carolina to Los Angeles back to his mother where she convinced him to turn himself in at a recruiting station. Um, He was discharged from the Army in 1964, and he was diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder 
this diagnosis was chronic, severe, and with characteristics of disregard for right and wrong, lack of empathy for others, and the inability to feel guilt or remorse for his deeds, which is the total opposite of what anyone said while he was in school. Yeah, no, total opposite. Uh, something else that should be said is out of all the research I did, too, there was nothing that said what happened while he was in the military what made him have this mental breakdown but whatever it was thank goodness it did because this at least gives us a baseline for the person that Rodney Alcala is and speaks to his mental status at the time of him being an adult. So after being discharged from the army he decides that he's going to enroll in the California State University. He then transferred to UCLA he graduated with a fine arts degree in 1968, and he enjoyed photography and had decided to pursue this as his career. And remember that. He liked photography because of this will come back into play at some point in his story. And that brings us to our first crime. And again, back to our kind of trigger warning for crimes against children. This is where things are about to get a little icky. So, in September of 1969, a little eight-year-old girl, her name was Tally Shapiro, she was walking to school. And, in another side note, her parents were actually staying in a hotel. Their house had actually just burnt down, and this was just like a temporary solution for them. But, they lived in close enough proximity to the school, so that way Tally could walk. And, it said that she really enjoyed walking to school. So, again, she's walking to school, and... Rodney rolls up in his car and he asks her if she wanted a ride. And again, back to episode one with Bitter Creek Betty, stranger danger. Okay. Absolutely. That's exactly what she tells him is that she did not talk to strangers. Her parents had raised her to be that way. And he goes on and he, you know, tells her that he knows her parents and that he's a photographer and that he has a picture that he thought they would like. She was also raised to not be disrespectful or rude to people. So, in her little eight-year-old mind, she said, okay, he knows my parents. I'm going to go ahead and get in the car with him. So, she gets in the car, and a good Samaritan had noticed that she got in the car, and to him, he felt that this was suspicious. And he felt that Tally didn't really know this man that she was getting in the car with, which, let it be known, he didn't know her either. So, he didn't know either party involved, but he just thought it was suspicious. So, he chose to follow them to Rodney's apartment, which is where he went, and he called the police when they both went into the home. LAPD officers responded. They knocked at the door, but he didn't answer. But instead of answering the door, he showed up at a window and was like, hey, you know, what do you need? I'm in the shower. It's going to be a minute. And they said, no, we're not waiting. We're going to come in because we got this, you know, call. And so they busted the door down and they saw a trail of blood immediately from the doorway that led to the kitchen. So it just makes you wonder the scuffle that went down as soon as he had her closed in the house. It's awful to even think about. They found Tally lying with a steel bar pressed to her throat, and she was nude. Due to the amount of blood that was found at the crime scene, they said there's no way this little girl has survived this event. They took the bar off of her throat to just see if they could preserve any evidence from it. And 
they started searching the rest of the house. And as they were searching the rest of the house, they heard her coughing and gagging. And they immediately went to her and said that, you know, regardless of what's in this house, she's priority one. We're going to make sure that she makes it out of here. And they sought medical attention for her. After they got Tally taken care of, they searched the rest of the apartment and they found photographs of several young girls in playful and sexually explicit and provocative poses. They found tons of photography equipment and a UCLA student ID badge that had his name, Rodney Alcala, on it. Which, let's just point out, that is pretty terrible. I mean, it's one thing to go into photography, but a totally other thing to say that you basically want to do explicit photography. It's one thing when it's adults. Right. Yeah, because, I mean... Sex work is very much prevalent and popular in today's times. Like, it's nothing if you want to be a stripper. If you want to be a stripper, girl, do your thing. God, do your thing, you know. But when it's very young girls who don't have consent of, you know, an of-age adult, and they're in these provocative poses, it's, it's really sickening, honestly. Very. Once they got Tally the medical attention that she needed, um, it was disclosed that she had been brutally attacked, beaten, and raped. And miraculously, she did survive the entire incident with Rodney. Um, She spent over a month in a coma and several more months in the hospital relearning to get back on her feet. Which, an eight-year-old child should not have to go through something like that. No. should not have to wind up in a hospital for months learning how to get back on their feet and how to do every day-to-day things. Like, that's disturbing and something a child should never have to go through. No. No, not at all. And especially since, like I said earlier, her, her family had already been through so much. They'd just lost their house. They were temporarily living month to month in a hotel. And, I mean, although it was, you know, the late 60s early 70s they just assumed that it was safe you know the school wasn't very far she could walk and we all know today you can't do that at all no so unfortunately rodney actually escapes from the police and after her recovery she's unable to recall anything about her attack which is a pretty typical thing for people who have been in a coma there's going to be some memory loss there. Right. Um, Tally and her family relocated to Mexico because they found it too difficult to remain in the area where her attacker was still on the loose. And due to Rodney, you know, fleeing from this incident, he was actually placed on the FBI's most wanted list. He fled and traveled the East Coast, and he changed his name up and decided to use the alias John Berger, which... I don't know who wants the last name Burger, but I guess that works. Um, it worked for him because he was able to enroll in NYU where he took a class with Roman Polanski, which if that name sounds familiar to the true crime community, he was Sharon Tate's husband. And if that name sounds familiar to you, she was a fabulous supermodel who was pregnant with Roman's child at the time that she was killed by Charles Manson's cult in 1969. From 1969 to 1971, 
he held a counseling position at New Beginnings Arts and Drama Camp for Girls in New Hampshire. And actually, 1971 would mark his third season being with the girls' camp. While he was there with the girls' camp, the police received a call to accompany a young man named Leon Bernstein to his girlfriend's apartment after her mother had called him and said that she wasn't able to hear from her and or she hadn't heard from her. So they went over to the apartment, knocked on the door, but no one answered. The officers told Leon to stay in the hallway and they ended up climbing a fire escape and busting in the window. Inside, they found Cornelia Michael Crilly's dead body. She liked to go by Michael. So she was a beautiful 23-year-old flight attendant and she was just getting settled into this new apartment with a roommate. It was determined that Michael had let her attacker into the home because they didn't see any forced entry. Which it has to make you wonder, though, what point did she realize that she was in danger? Since there was no forced entry at all, like, at what point during this visit did she realize, hey, I'm in danger and this person's not here for fun? Right, right. You know, he is a photographer, so he could have said, hey, I was sent here by this photography agency They wanted me to come and photograph you in your flight attendant uniform because they want you to be on the cover of the pamphlet or an ad for the airline that you work for. Yeah, he could have been using any part of that charm. Same with Tally, you know, saying that he had this picture that her family wanted. Then again, he's just using his charm to get into these women's houses. Right, but I can't help but wonder, you know, there's such an age gap. You know, Tally was 8, Michael was 23, so he would have to refine that charm because this is not a naive 8-year-old girl. Right. Not saying that 23-year-olds, my God. Not saying that they're not naive because I know... I was naive at 23 and 23, way back <laughs> in the day, 30 years ago. <laughs> and her cause of death was strangulation... Michael had also been raped, and her bra had been pulled up over her head, and one of her breasts had been bitten, and it was found that the majority of her injuries were sustained while she was still alive. They were able to pull a saliva sample off of the breast that had been bitten. However, and this is going to come up in several other instances as well, that there was no data bank for comparison, but... They could identify the blood type, and they were just really looking to see if any DNA was present. So, we were saying that, you know, this occurred while he was a counselor at New Beginnings Arts and Drama Camp. And some of the girls at this camp went to the local post office and saw the FBI's Most Wanted poster. And they actually recognized their counselor, John Berger, and they took this up with the camp's dean. Which is a smart idea on their part. Right. And the dean himself went and checked it out and then contacted the FBI as he didn't want to risk the girl's safety. And really, when I was doing the research for this case, when these girls initially recognized, you know, John Berger's photo, you know, they're just teenagers. They were like, everybody in the world has a doppelganger. Everybody in the world has a twin. Mm -hmm. So they, at first, they didn't think anything of it, but then they decided to bring it to the the camp's dean's attention. 
was a great idea because he actually calls the FBI and they tell him to know just act normal don't raise any suspicion uh, but don't allow him to spend any time alone with the girls and Rodney actually ends up being arrested shortly after and brought back to California in 1972, a case was being built against Rodney for Tally's attack. While he was being interrogated for Tally's attack, he referred to himself in the third person as if he were actually John Berger and not Rodney Alcala. Right. And this just goes back to his mental diagnosis from the military. It's not out of the realm of possibility that he actually thought he was John Berger. Right, because with a mental disorder, you know, mental personality disorder, you could truly think that you are this person and that you've created this entire persona of this person that's not really you. While the case was being built, Tally's parents actually refused to let her testify, which, I mean, why would you want her to go through all that trauma again? She was eight at the time. Right, and it was even said earlier that she didn't remember anything that had happened to her. I think that was very smart on the parents' part that they didn't let her testify. Because, again, like you said, she was only eight. I wouldn't want to relive that trauma again if I was 38, much less eight. And the fact that she couldn't remember anything, it just makes you wonder that at the time would she have even been a valuable witness. Right. Anyway. Yeah. So you would just drag her through this horrible experience. All over again. And then she wouldn't be able to tell you any identifying information or anything that's going to help you, you know, put the nail in this guy's coffin, per se. Right. And unfortunately, due to her not being, you know, her parents not letting her testify, this made the courts unable to convict Rodney of rape and attempted murder, which allowed him to plead to a lesser charge of child molestation. Um, he was given an indeterminate sentence of one year to life, and this sentence allowed parole boards to release offenders as soon as they demonstrated evidence of rehab, which is ridiculous. This blew my mind. When I was researching, I literally had to take a minute and go back and research indeterminate sentencing alone because, you know, I've worked in a prison, and if inmates are good at anything, they're good at lying. Right? Right. They'll be the one to sit there and tell you with blood on their hands, I didn't do this. You've got the wrong person. And for him to just be able to go to the parole board at any point in time, even though mentally he's already in a state where he's like, I'm not Rodney Alcala. I'm John Berger. He could go to that parole board and say, thank you. Thank you for teaching me this lesson. I'm completely rehabilitated. I will no longer be a threat to society. Can I please leave? And they could just be like, yeah, sure. Check. You're gone. Which is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Yes. I 110% agree. While he was serving this indeterminate sentence, everybody in the prison had said that Rodney was compliant with everything that was asked of him. He took advantage of all educational, vocational, and self-help courses available to him. And they said that he was a quick learner who attended these classes, engaged with other inmates, as well as the instructors. And he also participated in therapy sessions that were available. And when he appealed to the parole board, 
He came as a model prisoner, stated that the crimes that he committed were of were those of a former life that he had shed completely. And so he was released after only serving 27 months, just over two years. And he was sentenced for one year to life. For one year to life. But again, with that one year to life, that's a gap. Anything after a year, he could get out. Mm-hmm. So... He only served a little over two years for these child molestation charges. Which, again, it just makes you think if Tally had any memory of anything that happened to her, like what the outcome could have been and the lives that could have been saved because of her testimony against him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, after he served these 27 months, he was required to register as a sex offender. Uh, let me just point out here... It kind of seems like he is playing the system. Like he is playing these people here in this prison want me to be the model citizen that I should be. So I'm going to go through all these steps to make it seem like that. Exactly. Which again plays into the fact that he only got out, you know, a little over two years without serving a life sentence for the things that he did to Tally. Right. Dumb. No, I completely agree. I think, you know, everybody knows that the justice system is, in my opinion, broken. I don't think the people that deserve to go away get what they deserve. And, I mean, in the grander scheme of things, they'll never be able to get what they deserve for the awful things that they have done. But I think if there was even an inkling that he was the person that did this to Tally. I mean, they charged him and sentenced him to this indeterminate sentence, but I feel that if there was any inkling that he had done this, he should have been, you know, punished. Because if, if you could do child molestation, which I know molestation, sexual assault, those are kind of umbrella terms that have different categories that fall underneath them. But I feel like he should have definitely did way more than two years. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And with being, you know, having to be required to register as a sex offender, which he did, there's a lot of rules that you have to obey by when you get registered as a sex offender. Like, if you want to move somewhere, you have to tell someone, you have to give them their address. I think, I don't know if you have to anymore, but I think you used to have to go and tell your neighbors that you were a registered sex offender. Mm -hmm. So, there's a lot of rules that he actually had to go by with being that registered sex offender, which I just want you to remember for this next part. Less than two months after his release in 1974, he once again is offering a 13-year-old girl by the name of Julie Johnson a ride to school, much like he did with Tally. Right. She was unsure whether to accept his ride or not, but also tired of waiting for the school bus. Rodney tells her that he had cool posters inside his trunk and that he was the photographer once again playing on the charm. I take all these pictures. You should really like me. Right. And in typical 13-year-old fashion, she's like, I am tired of waiting for the bus. I don't, you know, I don't want to wait anymore. But I don't know this guy. Yet, Julie decides to accept the ride from him icky right and Ronnie you know is driving her supposedly to school but then all of a sudden 
He passes the school up. And she starts begging for him to stop. And Mm -hmm. he ignores her. He takes her to an overlook at a park and forces her down onto a rock and sat beside her. He asked if she had ever been high and began smoking a joint. He tries to kiss her roughly and tease her about not liking boys because she pulls away from him. Which, who wouldn't? Exactly. Some guy you just met and he's wanting to, like, snog your face off? No thanks, bud. No, that's gross. And a park ranger on duty approaches them and Rodney stated that they were hiking and taking a break. And Julie immediately stated that she had been kidnapped. Good girl. And Rodney downplayed the situation, saying that she wanted to try marijuana, and he wanted to make sure that she was safe. Which, in any situation, like, again, I know this was the 70s, but I don't think any rational thinking adult is going to be like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. She should be in school. She's out here with this guy in a park, like... I don't know if it was a Tuesday, but on a Tuesday. Right. Let the, yeah, let's just get her high. Why like that, that should have raised some flags for Exactly, him. and it does. Yes, and he takes them both to the police station where Rodney was found in violation of his parole and was again in prison. Thank God. But this time, it was for drug possession and kidnapping. And again, he was paroled after serving two years of an indeterminate sentence which i think at this point if this is your second time coming to prison you shouldn't get an indeterminate sentence no hello because if you were found in violation of your probation and you were already registered as a sex offender you should not be near a 13 year old girl no like the parole and probation board they know your stats bud like they know you're not married you have no children what are you doing hanging out with this 13-year-old girl who's claiming she's been kidnapped and does not know you from Adam? Right. So, I think an indeterminate sentence shouldn't have never been on the table. Right, because this, again, allows him to play the system and be very methodical in what these people want him to be, a, a model citizen. Exactly. And that's what gets him released And after serving two years. And he's made to actually report to his parole officer once a week now. So at least they've done that. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I think at this point, you know, registering as a sex offender obviously wasn't enough. This time he has to be held accountable and he has to go into an office once a week and say, Hey, I'm still here. This is what I'm doing. However, hmm, his parole officer must have been dumb. In the summer of 1977, he asked his parole officer if he can go on vacation. And he's like, sure, no big deal. You've had a really rough go at things here lately. You're a sex offender. That's just not a good reputation to have. Yeah, you need this break. You know, exactly. Just go have some fun. You've been in prison for a total of four years for crimes against minors. No problem. You go have fun. And it was also in 1977 that... Again, if you love true crime like we do, the Son of Sam and the Hillside Stranglers kind of burst onto the scene as well. So that muddies the water. California in the 70s and 80s, just all around not a fun place to be. It's quite terrifying, actually. (laughs) So with this vacation, he's able to travel back to New York. It was around this time that Ellen Hover, a Manhattan socialite and orchestra conductor with a degree in biology went missing she just vanished 
And her family papered walls and kiosks with posters regarding her disappearance. When they searched her apartment, they found a note in her calendar that showed that she had planned to have lunch with a photographer she had met by the name of John Berger. Which, if you remember, John Berger was the alias that he used when he went to NYU. Exactly. And it was also the alias he used at the arts and drama camp for girls in New Hampshire. Right. Just to let you in on a little secret. It's Rodney Alcala. So, by the fall of 1977, he had actually returned to L.A. and landed a job with the L.A. Times. And guess what? They didn't do background checks. So they had no idea that he was a twice convicted felon and a registered sex offender. So good on you, L.A. Times. During his employment with them, he convinced hundreds of young men and women that he was a professional fashion photographer. And this was when he decided to start building his quote-unquote portfolio. And one of his co-workers there recalls that he had actually shared these pictures around the office with some of the people that he worked with. He actually remembers that the majority of these young girls and boys were naked and the photos were actually sexually explicit. Which, I mean, if you're going to say that you are a fashion photographer, that means you're wearing all these nice, you know, clothes and name brand. but You're following trends. But there is not really fashion in nudity. A birthday suit is not a suit. Right. (laughs) If you actually Google Rodney Alcala photos, you'll see one of the first results that you're going to get on Google is for the Huntington Beach Police Department because they're actually still sharing these photos because they mostly want to go through and make sure that everyone that was photographed is still alive. And some of the people in the photographs that they still have out there, they're just really unsure of. And if you recognize any of them, go check out their link. You can also check out our Instagram or Twitter. Any of our socials, I've actually shared the pictures on there. And the Huntington Beach Police Department's number is attached on there as well. Right. So here is where things get a little bit tricky. So you have Ellen Hover, who has completely disappeared and has it on her calendar that she had an appointment with a John Berger, who is a photographer. The FBI knew that John Berger was an alias of Rodney's from when he was captured in New Hampshire. When he was questioned about the disappearance of Ellen Hover, he admitted that he had met her, photographed her, and that he dropped her off at her apartment and never heard from her or saw her again. And he also declined a polygraph, which should raise some flags. It should, but again, the science or the lack thereof with polygraphs is you take it, and you fail it, but you have nothing to do with it, you're a suspect. And you could fail a polygraph for any number of reasons. You could be worked up, nervous to talk to police, even if you don't have any valuable information to give them. Or you could be the parent or a friend of the victim, and you're very, you're emotional, you're sweaty, you're clammy, and you fail it, and again, you're still made a suspect, even though you've had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. And... If you decline it, you still look guilty. Right. So, really, I think that's what police do is they kind of test the water. They want to see, will they take it? If they say no, okay, you're a person of interest or you're a suspect. And I've been listening to a lot of shout-out to Crime Junkie. 
And that's one of their that's one of their crown junkie roles. Never take a polygraph because it's inadmissible in court and it's never going to help you. A detective with the Missing Persons Bureau searched the heavily wooded area where Ronnie had said that he and Ellen had taken pictures. He found women's undergarments and what appeared to be a human leg bone. Ellen's case was officially ruled a murder investigation after that. Eleven months after Ellen went missing, her remains were found 30 miles north of the city. She was identified through dental comparison and no other forensic evidence was left behind that pointed to her killer. So she pretty much just disappears, they find her body, and that's it. Right. And that's where it sits for years. Which I could not imagine. So in the mix of all of this, a body of a young woman is found by police that had been brutalized and posed in Hollywood Hills. Her name is Jill Barkham, and she was an 18-year-old girl from New York. She had taken a cross-country trip with her friends, and she was presumed to be a victim of the Hillside Stranglers. Because, again, they just burst onto the scene and started a, you know, started piling bodies of their own. Crazy times live in California. Not a, not a Beach Boy song, that's for sure. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> At this time, Rodney was interviewed by members of the Hillside Stranglers Task Force as part of their investigation of known sex offenders. Rodney had answered for all dates and times in question, and his alibis were corroborated. He was ruled out as the Hillside Stranglers. However, they found marijuana and took him in on drug possession charges. But before this, this is again where things get a little strange and they're out of line, but it's all going to make sense later. Right. Things are chronologically in order, but it's how the research falls that we're trying to keep this really crazy timeline straight. So once again, they think that, you know, Jill Barkham is a victim of Hillside Stranglers. Rodney has officially had his alibis checked out, so he is not the killer of Jill Barkham, supposedly. Right, right, because they do. They think she's just, you know, another body stacked in the wake of the Hillside Stranglers. They rolled Rodney out as the Hillside Strangler. And he goes free. Yeah, he walks for that, but police do not know that they're actually talking to another serial killer. Right. And in December of 1977, the L.A. Sheriff's Office receives a call from a clerk at Centronella Hospital. The caller stated that her friend, Georgia Wickstead, hasn't shown up for work that day and that she was concerned. She said that they had celebrated a friend's birthday that night before at a pub and that she had tried contacting her when she didn't show up for work, but Georgia didn't answer. So this is where it raised concern for police, and they were dispatched to her apartment. They noticed that a screen was missing from the window and that there was a box beneath it, as if someone had to use it to climb into the window. Nope. They knocked on the door. No answer. The apartment was actually unlocked, and they entered immediately and saw George's body on the floor. They checked the apartment and notified homicide. Blood DNA was collected, and it was found that most injuries Georgia sustained were while she was still alive. Which kind of fits the M.O. for Rodney. And again, just going back to there's no data bank for comparison because this is the early, well, this is the late 70s now. You know, it's 10 years. There's still no way that they can figure out who this person is, which is just mind-boggling. 
And again, in June 1978, a building manager answered his door due to a tenant pounding and screaming outside the door. And the tenant told him that there was a dead body on the ground floor laundry room. He attempted to provide help when he actually got down there to the body. And his wife, who was a nurse, told him, you know, there's no use, she's already gone. This woman's body was posed, she was covered in blood, and she was taken in for an autopsy. At this time, she was unidentified, but they did find that her cause of death was strangulation. Her face and head had suffered blunt force impact, presumably from a piece of wood that was found nearby her body. She had bruising and lacerations that led police to believe that she had been raped and hold your butt, possibly with an object. Mm. Sperm was recovered, but again, no data bank for comparison. So it seems that there's going to be no end in sight for these poor victims and their families. Like It just seems like there's going to be no closure because there's no way they can tie anything back to one certain person at this time. I tell you what, it must have been real easy to get away with murder in the 60s and 70s. Exactly. Because this is ridiculous. I mean, this is like, what, three or four different cases where there's just like no technology and no way to compare any sort of DNA sample to get someone caught. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, now we have it to where every person in prison, every person who's been arrested, there's some kind of fingerprint, DNA that leads a trail mm-hmm. right back to them. So there's, it's, I'm not saying that it's impossible because clearly we still have cold cases, but it's very unlikely that you'll get away with murder now. Right. And actually, while they were doing everything with this Jane Doe they found in the laundry room, Santa Monica police receive a call that 32 year old Charlotte Lamb, a legal secretary, hadn't shown up for work in a week. And her sister had been trying to reach her and wish her a happy birthday. Charlotte had gone to a club and her car was ticketed for overnight parking. And two days later, the car was still there. So, obviously, Charlotte did not leave the club by herself. When police searched her apartment, there was nothing out of the ordinary. It looked just like a regular apartment. Mm. Her friends and family were contacted, but no one had seen or heard from her. Sadly... The body that was in the laundry room of the apartment complex was identified as Charlotte Lamb. This kind of sounds like the same situation as Georgia, where she was in a pub. She clearly never showed up for work. Right. Possibly left with somebody else because her friends were like, Hey, she didn't make it home. She's not here at work today. What's going on? Once again, a trend. Exactly. Just further solidifying this pattern of behavior the mode of no idea no idea but if one was to say that it was Rodney then you lack of empathy for others mm-hmm. disregard of right and wrong right that is clearly demonstrated with the way these women's bodies were posed the way they were treated the way they were brutally beaten before their deaths it's just awful and you gotta wonder, was he thinking that he was John Berger when he did these things? Or did he actually realize that he was Rodney because of his mental disorder? 
1978, Rodney appeared on the dating game show as Bachelor Number One. Whoop, whoop. Come on down. Because I don't understand, you know, 1978, here we are. They still did not run background checks. Still did not run background checks. And at this time, you know, again, he's still a twice convicted felon. He had drug charges. He had drug charges. And he is a person of interest from Ellen Hover's case because they know his alias is John Berger and that's whose name was in her calendar. Mm-hmm. So, I think if they would have ran a background check, or you probably don't have to go into like any like sleuth master detective skills for this. It's just a simple put this out here, get some fillers, hey, do you know Rodney Alcala? And I'm sure they would have gotten plenty hits because if I would have went on the show as The Bachelorette, I'd be very, very disappointed. And you also have to wonder, was he still having to report to a parole officer? And did this parole officer allow him to make an appearance on the dating game show? Exactly. Who knows? That's the thing. That is the thing. You know, if his parole officer is giving him a vacation. Who knows if he ever did come back. I never found anything like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So when he appears on the dating game show, the host, Jim Lang, introduces him as a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the darkroom at the age of 13, fully developed. I want to puke everywhere right Weird now. choice of words there. Exactly. And... Even his fellow contestants described him as a very strange guy. And part of this is because behind the scenes, he had told all of them, I always get my girl. And he was not wrong. He was not wrong. He fully delivered on that statement because he... shivers. (laughs) (laughs) Because he fully managed to use charm and innuendos to win a date with the Bachelorette on this particular episode. However... She refused to go out with him because as soon as she introduced, like, as soon as producers introduced the two together, she was like, no, he's he's creepy, he's off-putting, I don't want anything to do with him. And to kind of let Rodney down gently, producers just told him something came up, she's suddenly unavailable, we're still going to give you the tickets to Magic Kingdom, you're still going to get your tennis lessons, you're still going to get the whole package, and you can take anybody you want with you. But you're not going with this bachelorette tonight. So. Which, thank God. Yeah. That probably saved her life. Just. And that's one life rule I'll put out there. Just like Crime Junkie. Follow your gut. If something doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. Absolutely. Even though he managed to win this episode of the dating game show, he still left empty handed. And unlike what he told the other guys behind the scenes he did not manage to get the girl this time and this is why they call him the dating game killer is because of this one appearance he had on television by early 1979 the hillside stranglers were behind bars and it does come out spoiler alert that the hillside stranglers were cousins and police actually worked with bianchi and began working their way through a list of victims that they hadn't quite found the killer for or they believed were victims of the Hillside Stranglers. And as they did so, 
they found out that Bianchi was not responsible for Jill Barcombe's murder, which, going back, she was the girl that was found murdered and posed in the Hollywood Hills who had taken a cross-country road trip with her friends. And he said that he never had even seen this girl. And they decided to take him seriously as he was already serving life in prison and had nothing to gain from lying. We're going to leave you with the cliffhanger of wondering who Jill Barkham's murderer is. Tune in with us next week to hear more of Rodney's crimes, Hal's appearance on the dating game show, and the information from Bianchi lead to his arrest and the trials to follow. Thanks for listening to Two Jane Goes. I'm Emily. And I'm Kayla. Remember to tune in every Monday at 6 p.m. as we dive into a new case. Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a good review so that way others can notice us too. Catch us on Facebook at Two Jane Does, where you can find updates on our episodes and links to our other social media accounts. If you have any cases that you want us to cover and go into detail with, you can leave us a message on our Facebook, or if you just happen to wind up on our page, you can send us a message there.